Doctors as far back as the late 19th century noticed a curious autopsy pattern among patients with troubled breathing. Patients would present with progressively worsening cough, cyanosis, and dyspnea, and would die within months of presentation. On autopsy examination, they noticed infiltration of the lung by spindle and star cells. These cells, now known as fibroblasts, were associated with small, stiff lungs without pleural adhesions. The variable histology made it difficult to classify it as a singular disease, but they all shared one thing in common, fibrosis of the interstitium and the clinical progression from subacute respiratory failure to death. This mysterious lung illness took on many names, from chronic interstitial pneumonia to cirrhosis cystica to interstitial fibrosis of the lungs. Today, it is known as pulmonary fibrosis. Today, our patient has pulmonary fibrosis, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is titled Scars That Don't Fade, Pulmonary Fibrosis. Time for a minute physiology. When we inspire, air travels to our terminal air sacs, known as the alveoli. This is the site for gas exchange as oxygen enters the surrounding bloodstream and carbon dioxide is taken out. The alveolar spaces are lined with a thin layer of epithelium and pneumocytes. In pulmonary fibrosis, it is believed that a trigger, such as toxin, virus, autoimmune process, or microaspiration, causes injury to the epithelial lining and pneumocytes. In response to the irritant injury, fibroblasts and plasma proteins form a fibrin deposit in the alveolar space. Contraction caused by the fibrin results in alveolar collapse. As the scarring progresses, the lungs stiffen and are no longer able to expand, making it difficult for oxygen to enter the lungs and reach the bloodstream. Research into the specific etiology of pulmonary fibrosis is ongoing. There are over 200 types of pulmonary fibrosis and interstitial lung diseases called ILD. One of the most common types of ILD does not have a known cause and is called idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or IPF. We will focus on IPF for today's episode. In healthy lungs, the forced vital capacity, meaning the maximum air that can be forcibly exhaled after complete inhalation, decreases by 200 mLs per decade, starting from age 25. In pulmonary fibrosis, this decrease may be accelerated by tenfold, at a rate of 200 mLs per year if untreated. In Canada, IPF has an incidence rate of 18.7 per 100,000 people. It affects men more often than women, and occurs usually after age 50. It is more common in those with a history of smoking, gastroesophageal reflux disease, and chronic viral infections. There is also a genetic component to this disease, as up to 30% of patients have an affected first-degree relative. Alright, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. Your first step in management of any patient is determining if they are stable. What is their GCS? Are their ABCs and vitals stable? While pulmonary fibrosis is a chronic progressive disease, patients may present with respiratory failure, particularly if they are experiencing an acute exacerbation. Patients experiencing an IPF flare may be tachypnic, tachycardic, hypotensive, hypoxic, and have a decreased level of consciousness. Tachypnea and hypoxia are common, even in patients not experiencing a flare, but with end-stage IPF. Once your patient is stable, you can move forward with the remainder of your assessment. Patients with IPF typically complain of exertional dyspnea and non-productive cough. 
the cough is usually chronic and progressive with insidious onset. A chest x-ray will show increased interstitial markings. The differential is broad and includes cardiac and gastrointestinal conditions such as heart failure and GERD. If interstitial lung disease is suspected, there are a wide range of causes that should be considered, including pneumoconiosis, hypersensitivity pneumonitis, and connective tissue diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis and scleroderma. Therefore, it is important to get the duration and timeline of symptoms, particularly in relation to triggers. Due to the vague initial symptoms and broad differential, it is not unusual for symptoms to be present for up to two years before diagnosis. Patients may also report systemic symptoms such as fatigue, and in advanced stages, weight loss. Remember to ask patients about risk factors for IPF such as GERD, smoking history, chronic viral infections with viruses such as EBV and CMV, and family history of pulmonary fibrosis in a first-degree relative. Age is also an important factor, as IPF is more common in older patients above the age of 50, while other interstitial lung diseases are more common among younger or middle-aged people. It is important to narrow your differential through a detailed history of exposures and symptoms that can cause other restrictive lung diseases, particularly connective tissue disorders, drug-induced lung toxicity, and environmental, occupational, and domestic exposures should all be considered. Idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis can only be diagnosed once other causes of ILD have been ruled out. Begin your physical exam with vitals. It is important to measure oxygen saturation at rest and with exertion, as patients may appear vitally stable at rest but become hypoxemic with movement. The bulk of the physical exam is focused on lung auscultation. Conduct a thorough respiratory exam. Pulmonary fibrosis is associated with fine, bibasilar, and inspiratory crackles. Fine crackles, in comparison to coarse crackles, are softer, shorter in duration, and higher in pitch. Another name for the pathognomonic crackles are Velcro crackles, as they resemble the sound of separating a joint strip of Velcro on a blood pressure cuff or shoes. Velcro crackles have excellent sensitivity and moderate specificity for pulmonary fibrosis. As the disease progresses, the crackles extend towards the upper lung zones as well. Other features of pulmonary fibrosis include clubbing of the nail bed and systemic symptoms such as weight loss. A thorough physical exam, particularly focused on connective tissue diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis and scleroderma, are important to uncover different etiologies. Now, what is the workup for pulmonary fibrosis? Chest x-ray, often done early in symptom presentation, shows bilateral reticular opacities, which has a wide differential. The gold standard for diagnosis of pulmonary fibrosis is high-resolution CT scan. High-resolution CT creates thin 1-2 mm slices of the chest, which allows detailed study of the pattern of fibrosis. This is critical in discriminating IPF from other ILDs. The scan must be done in both prone and supine positions to account for gravity-dependent, left heart failure-related changes, as well as through inspiration and expiration to assess for gas trapping which may point to alternative diagnoses. The radiologic pattern on high-res CT that is associated with IPF is called usual interstitial pneumonia, or UIP. The distribution of reticular opacities is bilateral, peripheral, and subpleural, with early disease starting at the bases. This is also characterized by honeycombing with traction bronchiectasis. Diagnostic criteria also include an apical to basal gradient, as IPF is typically worse at the bases, an absence of inconsistent features such as upper or mid-lung predominance, peribronchovascular predominance, extensive ground glass opacities, nodules, 
mosaic attenuation, or consolidations. IPF may be diagnosed based on high-resolution CT if diagnostic criteria are met, only after excluding known causes of ILD, and in such cases, a biopsy is not needed. If the high-res CT does not meet criteria, biopsy by video-assisted thoracoscopy, or VATS, may be used to reconfirm diagnosis. A diagnosis is preferably made with a multidisciplinary team consisting of respirologists, radiologists, and when necessary, pathologists. Laboratory findings are not particularly helpful to diagnose IPF except in ruling in or ruling out other causes of diffuse lung disease and associated conditions. Blood work to assess for autoimmune causes of ILD should always be obtained once the presence of ILD is confirmed, such as ANA, rheumatoid factor, CCP, and others depending on patient demographics. Pulmonary function testing in IPF demonstrates first at the initial stages an isolated reduction of diffusing lung capacity from impaired gas exchange. This is followed with progression of disease by a restrictive ventilatory defect. Forced expiratory volume in one second, FEV1, and forced vital capacity, FVC, will be decreased proportionally and thus the FEV1 over FVC ratio is maintained. There is a reduction in total lung capacity and functional residual capacity as a result of decreased lung compliance and size. Disease severity is based on a combination of clinical symptoms, including the use of shortness of breath scores such as the Medical Research Council Dyspnea, MRC score, findings on high-resolution CT, lung capacities measured via pulmonary function testing, and exercise capacity. The latter is assessed with a six-minute walk test, which is extremely helpful to longitudinally follow patients, providing information on both oxygen desaturation and exercise capacity during daily activity. Now on to treatment for pulmonary fibrosis. For idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, by definition, we do not have a known cause or exacerbation trigger to treat. No medication has been successful to cure or reverse IPF. However, in the last decade, two medications have been approved for treatment in Canada and worldwide. They are profenadone, an antifibrotic agent, and nintedinib, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Recall that in patients with untreated IPF, FVC declines at a rate of 200 ml per year. In clinical trials, both medications have shown to improve disease-free progression by significantly reducing the rate of FVC decline to 125 ml per year and reducing the incidence of acute exacerbations. The jury is still out on their effect on mortality. The choice of agent should be made based on patient preference and known side effects in consultation with the specialist. There is no difference between the two medications in terms of efficacy. Perfenadone dose ranges from 801 mg per day to a maximum of 2,403 mg per day and must always be taken with food. It is started at a dose of 267 mg, or one capsule, three times a day, and increased to two, and then maximally to three capsules, three times a day. Side effects of perfenadone include skin rashes due to photosensitivity, nausea, constipation, and fatigue. Liver enzymes should also be obtained prior to initiation of perfenadone and thereafter, but liver dysfunction is rare. The mainstay of supportive care for IPF is supplemental oxygen and pulmonary rehabilitation, which improve quality of life. Symptomatic management includes gabapentin or pregabalin for chronic debilitating cough and proton pump inhibitors for reflux symptoms. Pulmonary hypertension may be associated with IPF and treatment of that may be managed by specialized centers. 
Patients should also be educated on the importance of smoking cessation and vaccines, such as the seasonal flu and pneumococcal vaccines. Given the chronic and progressive nature of IPF, it is important to discuss end-of-life care and refer patients to palliative services early. Even with treatment, mortality from IPF remains high. The definitive cure for pulmonary fibrosis is lung transplantation. Clinicians must refer eligible patients quite early in the disease process, as lung transplantation assessment requires time to be completed. Indications for transplant include severe decline in lung function measured by pulmonary function testing or high-resolution CT, significant desaturations on the 6-minute walk test, acute exacerbation, and pulmonary hypertension. Median survival after transplantation is 5 to 6 years. Patients with pulmonary fibrosis may also present an acute exacerbation. The symptoms of an exacerbation are not specific. Diagnosis of an acute exacerbation is made in a patient with known or concurrently diagnosed IPF who has an acute respiratory decline, usually less than one month duration, and CT findings of acute changes superimposed on chronic UIP pattern, and exclusion of fluid overload, pulmonary embolism, and infection as a contributing factor. An acute exacerbation is often preceded by a period of rapid progression of disease. When patients with IPF present with worsening respiratory failure, they are often sick and it can be difficult to ascertain whether this is a true IPF exacerbation versus shortness of breath from another etiology. A CTPE is important to rule out a pulmonary embolism and look at the lung parenchyma. In an IPF exacerbation, CT will demonstrate a typical UIP pattern from chronic disease as well as more acute changes such as ground glass opacities and consolidation in previously spared areas. However, this appearance can be mimicked by heart failure and infection. Often, blood cultures, urine culture, echocardiogram, troponin, and BMP can help rule in or out these other causes. Flexible bronchoscopy with bronchialveolar lavage may be used to identify infections for targeted treatment, but patients are often too sick for it. BAL samples should be sent for bacteria, mycobacteria, fungi, and viral PCR. Surgical biopsies are generally not recommended due to high surgical risk in acutely ill IPF patients and minimal added value of these tests. Because alternative triggers are often difficult to separate from a true IPF acute exacerbation, the approach to treatment is broad. Broad-spectrum antibiotics are prescribed as pneumonia has clinical and radiographic overlap with an acute exacerbation of IPF. Antibiotics may be narrowed down if cultures become positive, but are often continued despite negative cultures due to the severity of each flare. A trial of diuresis may also alleviate symptoms and help differentiate IPF from other etiology of acute respiratory decline. Ultimately, treatment for an IPF exacerbation is primarily supportive care with oxygenation to maintain saturation greater than 90% and consideration of glucocorticoids. There's poor evidence for efficacy, but once an infection has been ruled out, pulse dose of glucocorticoids up to 10 mg per kilogram for three consecutive days is commonly used. Unfortunately, only about 20% of patients with true IPF acute exacerbation respond to the steroid pulse, and mortality is around 65%. Currently, there is no evidence for nintetinib and perfenidone for acute treatment. It is recommended to continue patients on established therapy or to start these medications after resolution of the exacerbation. Thankfully, antifibrotic treatment has made the incidence of acute exacerbations of IPF significantly lower. Let's finish with our medicine minute. 
Did you know the first successful lung transplant ever done in the world was for a patient with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis? Tom Hall was the 45th patient in the world and the first to experience long-term survival after receiving a single lung transplant in Toronto in 1983. He lived for more than six years after his transplant. The life expectancy for IPF back then was months to two years. Now in Canada, an average of approximately 300 lung transplants occur every year, with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis being the most common indication. Early referral for transplantation is now a cornerstone in management of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Alright, that's all for today. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Scars That Don't Fade, Pulmonary Fibrosis. This episode was written by Dr. Anandidi Das, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Marco Mira, respirology, and Dr. Karen McGuckers, general internal medicine. This episode is recorded by Leia Karen Michaels and produced by Nathan Dewey. Music by Lakshmi Sankar. The Internet Work series is created by Allison Mann and developed by Zara Marani and Leah Karen Michaels. Don't forget to check out our website, www.theinternetwork.com, for associated infographics and resources. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.